God does exist, would you really want to know him and follow him? The reason I ask that question is because I think that actually for most of us Aussies, I think for most of us, the number one reason why we don't kind of subscribe to following God, uh, I don't think it's actually an intellectual reason, but we'll kind of deal with some of those tonight. I actually think the number one reason uh, we put God to the side is because it's a lifestyle thing. It's an experience of life thing for us. Uh, we feel like we're actually pretty happy with our lives. We're pretty, you know, we're enjoying life. We're going pretty, pretty okay. And we just can't imagine the fact that if we had God in the picture of our lives, we just can't really imagine that that would make it any better. In fact, I think for most of us as Aussies, we feel like if, if we did have God in the picture and we had to follow him, then maybe that would make life a bit less fun. We might have to stop doing some of the things that we're currently enjoying. Uh, maybe you'd have to give up getting drunk. Maybe that would be the problem. You, you really like getting drunk. You really like sleeping with your girlfriend. You really like plagiarising. You really like doing something. You like listening to the phones in the middle of sermons. You know, all that sort of stuff. Maybe if you're... You know, I'm not saying you're not following God, but maybe if you... It's alright, it's alright. Maybe you might think that if you started following God that your life would just start to go downhill a bit. I wonder if that's you. I think most of us Aussies kind of have this idea of God ingrained in us. This idea that God's a bit of a killjoy, that you know, if I did follow him, then my life, well, it just wouldn't be that much fun anymore. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I think even as Christians, uh, we kind of don't go all the way with following God sometimes because we feel like we'll miss out on a bit of fun. Of course, there are some people, and this could be you, it could be this person in the room, uh, who actually has an intellectual barrier with following God. Uh, there's something like a, a reason or some sort of logical thing that you just can't imagine that there actually is a God. That could be you. And we'll have a look at something, some of those reasons tonight. But I think that the experiential reason, if we're really honest, is the one that a lot of us have to deal with. Uh, we like the way we're doing life. We feel like life's going pretty well. And we just feel like we'd like to push God aside. Not actually have him have too much control in our life. Not actually have him have too much say. So we're just pushing aside. Just forget about him. Maybe forget about him while we're at uni. Put him on the back burner. That could be you. This is the kind of idea that I want us to wrestle with tonight. Um, because what I want to say is that if that's your picture of God, if that's your understanding of who God is, that he's got some kind of cosmic killjoy just out there to smash all your fun, then listen in. Because I think you might be in for a surprise as we actually understand who God is when we meet him in the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at three intellectual reasons uh, that kind of say that there probably is a God. We're going to have a look at one historical reason for God. And then we're going to think about our experience of God when we actually see the God that we come to know in the Bible. So let's get stuck into it. You've got an outline there in front of you. That's kind of where we'll be working towards. Um, and so let me just show you a couple of the intellectual reasons uh, that people have pointed to, uh, to to say that there probably is a God out there. Uh, these reasons that we're going to look at, 
They're kind of philosophical reasons. They're reasons that have been developed by people as they just kind of look at the earth. You know, people kind of go, well, we look at the earth, we look at the universe, and you can kind of make some conclusions about maybe there is a God. Uh, these, these reasons that we're going to look at, they're by no means uh, proof for God. Uh, if you're like my friend who said to me last year, a friend last year and came up to me and he said, Steve, I just want you to prove it. Uh, if you can prove God to me, then I'll believe. You know, if God just shows up, if he does something right here, right now, then I'll believe. Uh, if you're in that camp, and I don't think these reasons that we're going to work through uh, will probably get you over the line, they might edge you a little bit closer. Uh, some of these reasons date back a long way uh, to the 4th century. And this first one uh, that we're going to look at, first intellectual reason for God, uh, comes from a guy called Aristotle in the 4th century BC. And he said that someone or something had to kick the universe into being. Someone or something actually had to start all this stuff that we see around us. Uh, most modern scientists are now convinced that our universe happened with a big explosion, they call it the Big Bang. But even though uh, that's, what, that's the conclusion they've come to, scientists are still at a loss as to what actually caused the Big Bang to happen. Have a look at this quote uh, from astrophysicist Robert Jastrow. He's a self-described agnostic. He doesn't pretend to know anything about God. Uh, he's an astrophysicist, and he says this. He says, The seed of everything that has happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. The universe flashed into being, and we cannot find out what caused it to happen. Stephen Weinberg, a Nobel laureate in physics, he concludes that at the moment of that explosion, the universe was about 100,000 million degrees centigrade. I'm assuming that's pretty hot. And the universe was filled with light. Whatever made the Big Bang, whatever it was, we would all agree that the universe didn't always exist. It had to start, didn't it? And the question is, what actually caused it to start? What kicked it off? What made it begin? Scientists have no explanation for this. Uh, no explanation for this sudden explosion of sight of light and matter. But the Bible does. The Bible says that God started it. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was. It makes logical sense, doesn't it, that there was someone who kicked it into gear, that there was a God who made it, who created it. Someone or something first moved this universe into being. Secondly, the second reason uh, that people point to, the fact that there could be a God out there, uh, is that they look at the complexity of our universe. Uh, the complexity of our universe, people say, points to the fact that there is most likely an intelligent designer who designed it all. Uh, our world is just made too well 
for it to be a random fluke or accident. Uh, just take the Earth, for example. Uh, the Earth and its size is perfect. Uh, the Earth's size and its kind of corresponding gravity actually holds this layer of gas, of nitrogen and oxygen gases together, which we call our atmosphere. Uh, if the Earth was any bigger, we wouldn't have this kind of atmosphere. If it was any smaller, it wouldn't exist. The Earth is the only planet uh, equipped with an atmosphere that actually allows for life like we have, for plant life, for animal life, for human life. Uh, furthermore, the Earth is located at exactly the right distance from the sun. Our temperatures, you know, in Bendigo here, we have some pretty wild temperature swings. It gets up to 45 in the summer and minus 5 in the winter. If you've just moved here, that'll be a shock once you come around to July. But generally, our temperatures work out pretty well for us, don't they? We can live, we can survive. But if our Earth was just a little bit closer to the sun, we would all burn up. If our Earth was just a little bit further away, we would all freeze to death. That's the perfect distance from the sun. It's what actually allows life to be possible. But even more so amazing, I think, is that the Earth remains this perfect distance while it's travelling at a whopping speed as it goes around the sun. 108,000 kilometres per hour. The world is going around the sun, and at the same time, it's spinning on its axis so that the world can be warmed and cooled each day. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you just can also look at the moon and how, how well-designed the moon is from the Earth. The moon is actually, likewise, the perfect distance for us from the Earth. Uh, the moon, as you might know, actually uh, creates the tides and, it, and with its gravity it makes the tides happen. I have no idea how that works. Some of you guys might know about that. But if the moon was a little bit further away, then our tides, well, we wouldn't have any. And our ocean would just kind of sit there and be stagnant, get full of algae and all the fish would die. If it was a bit closer, then the gravitational pull would be more and the, the oceans would actually start wrapping out over the continents. The earth, the moon, the sun, they're all perfectly placed. In Isaiah... Chapter 45, uh, we read this. God says, It is I who made the earth. I created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens, and he got it just right, didn't he? And my hands, I ordained all the starry host. See, the Bible says, it says that our world is complex. Our world is wonderful. And it is that way because God made it that way. He designed it that way. Finally, the third argument from intelligence for God is that our universe has a constancy about it. The fact that the universe actually operates with its laws of nature, that there's repeatability, is actually an argument for God. Now, much of life seems very uncertain. Uh, if you're just in your first week of uni and you've moved to this new town, and you're going, what is Bendigo? Then maybe you're thinking life's a bit uncertain. But let me just tell you that there are a number of things that you can actually count on every day. You can count on the fact that there's gravity. 
you're not going to float up and hit the roof. You can count on the fact that if you leave your cup of coffee on the bench, it'll get cold after a while and it'll be undrinkable. And don't try microwaving it because that won't help either. There's, there's a number of things out there. There's things in our earth that they just remain constant. Uh, this order and this reliability, it too, it actually baffles scientists. Uh, Richard uh, Feynman, who's a Nobel Prize winner for quantum electrodynamics, whatever that is, uh, it sounds like a smart guy, he said this, why nature is mathematical is a mystery. The fact that there are rules at all is a kind of miracle. Why is the universe so orderly, so reliable? How is it that we can identify laws of nature that never change? Well, it's not just some random miracle, is it? It's not just some fluke chance. No, we read in the Bible that in the book of Hebrews that the, the one who spoke the world into being, the God who was there at the beginning, he actually upholds and he sustains the whole world by the power of his word. So what we see when we look at these three reasons, these intellectual reasons, the cause, the complexity, the constancy of the universe, what we see when we look at them is that they all point to the fact that there is most likely someone or something behind it all. Someone's kicked it off, someone's designed it, someone's made it, someone's upholding it. The problem is, though, even though that makes logical sense, the problem is that we can't actually know who that person is, can we? Just by looking at the world, we can't actually know that much about that so-called God. Uh, we might be able to guess a little bit. Uh, we might be able to say, well, he must be pretty smart. Uh, he must be pretty powerful. But that's about it, isn't it? I mean, just think for a moment, how do you actually get to know anyone? Uh, it's possible that you could look at what someone made and make some deductions about them. Brendan's an artist. He'll do paintings, an aspiring artist, I might say. Um, you know, we might be able to learn something about Brendan from his art, but even then we couldn't really know that much about him, could we? How do you get to know people? How could we actually get to know what God is like? You know, if he has a character at all, if he's got things that he loves, things that he hates, if he's got, you know, all sorts of things, what is he like? Is he interested in us? Uh, does he really care about us? Or has he actually done other things on other planets and he's off interested in them? Just by looking at the world, you see, it's not actually enough, is it? Uh, by just looking at the world, we, we can make some conclusions about God. But we can't actually know him, can we? Now, if we're going to get to know God in a personal way, if we're going to get to know the real God, then something actually has to happen. For us to get to know God, what has to happen is he actually has to come and reveal himself to us. If Brennan did an art show, we might be able to guess. Sorry for picking on you, Brennan, but you're sitting there tonight, so it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we might be able to guess something about Brennan's talent if we looked at his art show. But if he just turned up and he walked in the door, then we'd actually get to know him, wouldn't we? We'd get to know what he's really like. That's how you get to know people. Uh, you can get to know people in all sorts of different ways. I've sent a number of you guys a text message this week. 
You probably don't know that much about me yet, but you know, you might have guessed something about from the text. Uh, maybe someone sends you an email, you can learn something about them. But the clearest way to find out, you know, what someone's like, get to know them, it's, it's when they just turn up, isn't it? And they walk in the door and they say, G'day, here I am, it's me. You get to know them. That's how we get to know people. When they reveal themselves through their words, through their actions, and through their very life. Too often I think we work the wrong way when we're trying to work out who God is. Uh, we say things like, you might not say this, but some people say things like, well, I think God is like this. Or, I think God is like a pony. Or, I think God is like a grandfather and he's just going to give us all lollipops. You know, you might have heard someone say something like that. I think God is like... But they're just our ideas, aren't they? That's just what I think. It doesn't matter what I think about Brendan from looking at his art, if I think, Brendan must be really, really tall. If he walks in the room and he's not, then it doesn't matter what I think. They're just my ideas, aren't they? It's a bit like, I don't know if you heard the story about the preschool teacher who actually, you know, she said to her kids, why don't you paint something uh, from what you did on the weekend? So, so all, the, all the kids, are, you know, they sit down and they start painting a little picture and she goes around the room and some of the kids are painting, you know, their mum and dad at the park and other kids are painting a picture of their pet dog. And then there's one little boy, he actually, he's painted this kind of weird, colourful blob, you know, and the, and the teacher, because all teachers are nice to prep kids, you know, she says, oh, that's lovely, you know, but what is it? And the boy goes, oh, that's God, miss. And she says, but no one's ever seen God. And the boy says, well, I have now. <laughs> doesn't quite work, does it? But it illustrates the point. It doesn't quite work to paint our own pictures of God, to try and think him up, ourselves. But so often in the history of the world, that's what we've actually tried to do. You look around throughout history and there have been thousands of depictions of what God might be like. People have looked at animals and they've thought, well, maybe God's like that. People have looked at you know, fire and water and they've created God in an image of that. Other people have worshipped the stars and the sun and the moon and, and they've said, well, maybe God's like them. There's a whole range of gods out there. There's, there's distant gods, there's inner gods, there's fearful gods, there's loving gods. There's a whole myriad of gods. But the question we need to ask is which one's the true God? Which one's the real God? And the answer is that the true God, the real God, is not the God of our imagination. Because that's not going to be any more real than that little boy's painting. No, the only way we can know the true God, the real God, is if he actually does something to show himself to us. We can only ever know God if he reveals himself to us, if he does something from his end to let us know what he's like. And this, friends, is what the Bible is all about. See, Christianity says that we can know the true God. We can know what he's like because he's revealed himself throughout history. Throughout the Old Testament, God 
revealed himself by his words and his actions. He, he spoke to people like Moses and he said, I am a merciful and a gracious God. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And when you look at the history of the Old Testament, that's exactly what you see, isn't it? God proved that he was that kind of God in the way he related to the people of Israel. He was patient with them. He loved them. But ultimately, though, the Christian claim reaches its climax when you come to the New Testament. With the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament, the claim is that God himself turned up in history. God himself became a man, and he said, Here I am. My name is Jesus. Now you can know God. In the Bible reading from John chapter 1 that we saw earlier, Jesus was referred to as the Word of God. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What we see here is that the writer John, he's, he's doing something a little bit strange. He's not just calling Jesus Jesus. He's calling him the Word, and he does that for a very deliberate reason. Uh, he's chosen to call Jesus the Word because he wants to make the point that Jesus reveals God to us. Because that's what words do, don't they? Words reveal things about who we are. If I meet up with you and I say, I love coffee, you'll know that my very being loves coffee because it's my words. Our words actually communicate things about who we are. In a very real sense, our words are a part of us. They are who we are. If you speak to your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you say, I love you, darling then they'll actually assume that you need it, won't they? They're not going to assume that, oh, they were just your words and you actually have no feelings for me whatsoever. No, they'll actually assume that you do love them because you said it, because your words are a part of who you are. So our words actually reveal who we are. That's why John calls Jesus the Word, because Jesus reveals God to us and he is God to us. What we learn as we keep reading John chapter 1 is that Jesus, the Word, he was there at the very beginning. In verse 3 you see that all things were made through him. Remember how in the Bible it speaks about how God caused the world to form simply by speaking and God said, and God said, and God said is what repeats over and over in Genesis chapter 1. God spoke through his Word through Jesus. When you skip down to verse 14 of our reading, we read that the Word didn't stay the Word. He actually became flesh and he dwelt among us. 2,000 years ago, John writes here that God himself put on flesh, put on this kind of stuff that we live in and he lived with us. If we had lived back then, we could have seen God in the flesh. John writes, we saw God's glory. We saw God's greatness. We saw God's character. We saw God's very being, being known in front of us, is what John is saying. You can know God when you look at Jesus. That's the claim of Christianity. It's pretty big, isn't it? I think that's a pretty big claim that Jesus makes God known. John 1.18 
says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. Christianity, you see, it, it claims something very big. It claims that Jesus is God. No other religion does that. You can look throughout the major world religions and you'll find that people like Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, Confucius, they all identify themselves as good teachers or prophets. They all said that they knew something about God, they had ideas about God, but none of them ever went as far as Jesus. None of them ever claimed that they were God. In John chapter 14, a guy called Philip came up to Jesus and he said this. Philip said, Lord, speaking to Jesus, he said, Show us the Father and that will be enough. Show us God is what Philip's saying. Show us God and then I'll believe. Do you know what Jesus says to him? Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is what sets Jesus apart from all the others. People ask Jesus, they say, they say, Jesus, is God real? And he says, yep. You're looking at him. He says, he's real. You're looking at him. You want to know what God is like? Then look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. One of the things that I think shows us that Jesus is God apart from his words is actually his deeds. The things that he did. The fact that he could actually do amazing things. Historically, it's, it's undeniable that Jesus did amazing things. That he was a miracle worker. He did things that no one else could do. All the reports in the Gospels, they say Jesus healed people. He healed the blind, the crippled, the deaf, the lame. Huge crowds followed Jesus because he constantly met their needs. He did things like feed them when there was no food around. He did miraculous things. He had power over nature. He walked on top of water. He told a storm to stop. And it did. But perhaps, if you're not really into the Gospels and you don't trust the Bible yet, we'll come back next week, because that's what next that talks about. Ancient historians as well, they all attest to the fact that this Jesus did remarkable things. People like the Jewish historian Josephus, they write, Jesus wrought amazing works. Uh, in the Talmud it is written, they killed Jesus because he practiced magic. These aren't Christian sources. These are sources from the time and a little bit later. His miracles, you see, they're undeniable and they point to the fact that he really is God. But perhaps the most surprising thing about Jesus, I think the most surprising thing, is that he actually reveals something amazing about God. He actually reveals to us that God really does love us. Jesus' words and actions, they show us that God deeply cares for us. They show us that God wants us to have joy and satisfaction. They show us that 
God actually wants us to experience life to the full. Uh, on one occasion, Jesus said this. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. What Jesus is saying there is that he can satisfy your deepest longings. Uh, he alone can give you true satisfaction in life. So can I just say that if this is your objection, if your only objection to God is that you're worried that your enjoyment in life might diminish, that you won't have as much fun because you have to give up getting drunk or stop sleeping around or stop plagiarising on essays or whatever it is, then can I just say, have a good, hard look at Jesus. Have a look at what he offers you. Many people will reject Jesus because they just want to sleep around. That could be you. You know that sense of affirmation that you get, that sense of being loved that you get when you're in a relationship? Jesus says he can better that. He can do better than that. You know why? Because Jesus' love for you won't walk out in the morning. It won't leave you. Jesus won't love you on conditions. He won't say, I love you just because you're pretty enough. I love you just because you're funny or because you're good at sport. Jesus' love doesn't come with conditions like that. No, Jesus says, even though you've treated me like rubbish, I died for you. I love you. I accept you as you are. See, when you look at Jesus, what you see is that you don't have to prove yourself to him. Now, when you look at Jesus and the cross on which he died, you actually see that he loves you more than he loved himself. And when you get that, when you get the fact that the God of the universe loves you like that. Well, then you know what that does. You know what it does when you actually, when that penny drops, when you realise how much it means that the God of the universe loves you in such a way, it actually gives you a joy. It gives you a joy like nothing else can. A joy that lasts. You know that sense of escape? that you enjoy when you get drunk. It doesn't last for that long, does it? Kind of seems okay for the night, but then in the morning you wake up with a headache and all your problems are still around. They're still there in front of you. You just need to escape again. Why not instead come to Jesus? Why not give your life to him? Because, because when you do, you realise that the one who loves you, the one who died in your place... He is actually the very same one who is in control of all things. And when you realise that, it actually gives you a peace about life, doesn't it? It means that we don't need to try to escape the world because we know that the one who is in control of the world actually deeply cares for us and loves us and is in control of all things and working for the good of those who love him. Can I encourage you while you're at uni, to not settle for the cheap substitutes in life. No, instead come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I asked that question at the start. I asked you, I said, if God exists, if he does exist, would you want to know him and follow him? Well, what we've seen is that when we look at our world, just kind of look at the world, see those those three reasons, we see that a creator God most likely does exist. When we look at the history of the world, we see that the one man actually stands out far above the rest. And it's when we keep looking at that one man, when we keep looking at Jesus, the God-man, we see that he and he alone offers true life, true satisfaction. Jesus alone can offer the satisfaction that you're looking for. He alone can offer that kind of joy. He says, come to me, all who hunger, all who thirst, and I will satisfy you. So will you do that? Will you start following him? Will you make a recommitment if you've stopped following him and you've been following those substitutes of joy? Will you do that tonight and find life in his name? I'm going to pray for us. Uh, and then if you'd like to ask me any questions, you can do that uh, about things that I've said. Um, but how about we pray and then we'll have some supper together as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us, that you have shown us who you are and what you are like. And we see that most clearly in the person of Jesus, your Son. Father, I pray for each one of us in this room that we would be people who follow him, that we wouldn't be led astray by the cheap substitutes of the world, which promise so much but deliver so little. Father, would you do a work in us that makes us long to follow you? And would you give us that joy and that peace that only you can offer? Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.